This was one of those mornings where I just hope I don't screw things up. Whew, that was pretty intense. Great job, y'all. Well, after a bit of a break for the holidays, uh, we're going to get back to uh, the series that we started back in August on uh, the way of Jesus. And so for some of you maybe that haven't been here, or maybe you're new here in the last few weeks, we've been taking a look at the Gospels, and we've been looking at Jesus' life, and paying attention uh, not primarily to the things that he said, but more so kind of the way in which he went about um, living his life, the way in which he went about being the Savior of the world. And we began our series a long time ago um, looking at this pretty familiar verse in John fourteen six, where Jesus said... I am the way and the truth and the life. And we talked about how uh, all of us, we want the abundant life that Jesus has to offer. That sounds awesome. But we noticed that he kind of put that at the end of that sentence. We we, we said that uh, some of us want some of the truth that Jesus wants to to share with us. But we also acknowledge, or at least I was willing to say, that I kind of want that life and that truth but I want to do it in kind of whatever way that I want to and kind of hope that God just blesses it as opposed to actually living out the Jesus way all the time. Because there's a tension that's created and all of us have probably noticed it that the Jesus way is pretty darn hard sometimes, right? And especially because almost all the time it flies in the face of this American way that that's been ingrained in all of us and even kind of the way in which the American church operates a lot of time. So today we're going to delve into Jesus' way of purpose. So I love some of the things that uh, Brent just shared um, because it really ties in well to what we're going to share about this morning. And you could, if you just went on the internet and just Googled, you know, the meaning of life or the purpose of life, I mean, you could read articles for days. Uh, I mean, that's just kind of the question that's out there for all of mankind that people are constantly searching, right? It's one of the kind of the great questions forced upon us. And it's one of the repeated questions that we have to answer um, through various stages of childhood and adolescence, right? What do you want to do when you grow up, right? And those of you that are seniors are probably dealing with that even more so. And I had to laugh um, when my wife and I sat down with three, uh, now it's been three of our older children, um, in the spring of their eighth grade year. And they're getting ready to fill out their, their class schedule for high school, right? And the counselors come and, you know, present this information and send you home with this material. And they're like, we really want you to pick your classes, you know, kind of geared towards your career path. And I'm like, they're 13 and 14 years old. I mean, I'm pretty sure that when I was 13, my career plan was still Major League Baseball player, Right? But when I looked at the inventory of things offered at Liberty High School, I didn't find a lot of classes kind of geared towards helping me reach my impending career, right? I mean, you know, most college kids can, can hardly figure out their career path. Few of us adults actually have. So um, it was really kind of a fairly ridiculous exercise. But knowing that finding our purpose in life is kind of this huge question, right, that everybody's kind of seeking. Um, About 14 years ago, a pastor uh, did a very smart thing. In 2002, Rick Warren, he's the pastor of this big church in California, Saddleback, he wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life, right? And the subtitle is, What on Earth Am I Here For? 
And this was brilliant, right? How many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life? Okay, that dates us all a little bit, all right? But in 2002, 3, 4, if you were a Christian, you read this, all right? It was kind of like you had to or else they take you outside and whoop you or something. I don't know, all right? But there were over 60 million. There's been 60 million copies of this book sold. It's been translated into over 50 languages around the world. Everybody wants to know what's the purpose of life. And I really, I just want to read to you like the first two paragraphs of the book because it really is great stuff. This is how he starts. He says, it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams or ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. The search for the purpose of life has puzzled people for thousands of years. That's because we typically begin at the wrong starting point, ourselves. We ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals, my ambitions, my dreams for my future? But focusing on ourselves will never reveal our life's purpose. The Bible says it is God who directs the lives of his creatures. Everyone's life is in his power. Contrary to what many popular books, movies, seminars tell you, you won't discover your life's meaning by looking within yourself. You've probably tried that already. You didn't create yourself, so there's no way you can tell yourself what you were created for. If I handed you an invention you had never seen before, you wouldn't know its purpose. And the invention itself wouldn't be able to tell you either. Only the creator or the owner's manual could reveal its purpose. This is great stuff. Um, Some great truths in there. And so he seized upon that, that idea of people just looking for meaning. But if we were to look to the Bible and, and get some clues to what our purpose is as followers of Jesus in this world, here's a sample of just a few verses we might find. The book of Isaiah, even before Jesus was born, kind of lays it out like this. Jesus, God is talking. He says, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So kind of a beginning step in our process of figuring out what our purpose is, is at least acknowledging that we were made for his glory. That's kind of step number one, okay? Let's look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So here we find out that that even just the smallest, minutest daily activities that we go about are are intended to be done for his glory. What else? Let's see 1 Peter 2. It says, But you are a chosen people, talking about Christians, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so we see that one of our purposes is to praise him. And then secondly, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And so we're supposed to live with a certain amount of, you know, character um, in our life. People would see our good deeds and glorify God. So we bring him in glory by doing all of those things. So, okay, I, I guess that helps a little bit. I don't know, to me it seems a little bit vague. So we're going to try to go a little bit deeper, see if we can get this down 
a little bit more. It's nothing that we've read says anything about making sure that you choose a particular career, right? That wasn't found on any of those verses or anything that we've read. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles up this morning to Philippians 2. It's page 819 in your pew Bibles there. Let's see what we can learn about our purpose here. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. This is Paul writing. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you were to look at that little passage there and sum up how... Jesus brought God glory, what would you say? How did Jesus bring God glory? By doing what? I can't hear you, what was that? By saving us all? Okay, yeah. Becoming a servant? Yeah, being obedient to death is kind of what you were getting at, yeah. Did the Father's will? Okay. Good. Right? It says he humbled himself. Right? Became a servant. Laid his life down. Okay? That's how he gave God glory. So the pattern set before us, and even if we just look at at verse 5 there, if we were to have the same mindset as Christ, is that our life should be characterized by these qualities of humility, of servanthood, of dying to our earthly desires. And that doesn't sound like a very glamorous lifestyle, does it? Imagine, you know, uh, being a high school student and sitting down with your counselor and having them say, so, so what do you want to do with your life? And you answering them, well, I'd really like to be humble. I'd like to serve others. And I'd like to lay my life down on behalf of my friends, right? That doesn't sound much like the American dream, that's for sure. So let's see how this played out in the life of Christ. I want you to turn your Bibles now over to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, It's to your left, page 686. Matthew chapter 16. And and we've kind of been following Christ's life as we've been doing these sermon series kind of chronologically and so this is kind of where we are in the story Jesus is about halfway through his three years of public ministry and as we've been seeing he's been traveling around from town to town he's been teaching people about his kingdom he's been healing people he's been doing these miraculous signs and there's quite a bit of buzz in the nation of Israel um, just trying to figure out who is this Jesus guy and there's all kinds of theories about his identity there's people that think he's like a resurrected prophet from the Old Testament. Like maybe he's Elijah, come back to life, or one of the prophets, okay? And so there's all this, this, uh, 
these theories on who he is. And so finally one day, Jesus, he's been hanging out with his 12 disciples, his best friends for a year and a half. They've been doing everything with him. He finally turns to them and says, what about you guys? Who do you guys think that I am? And Peter, the oldest and usually kind of the most bold, he kind of stands up and he says, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he was right. Nobody else had been really willing to say that to this point. So it was a pretty bold statement. Um, So the disciples had Jesus' identity right, but they really struggled with his purpose. So I want you to look down at verse 21 of Matthew 16. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And in the Gospel of Luke, he explained this moment like this. Same, same time frame, same situation. If you can put that one up there, Todd. There we go. As the time approached, it says, for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay? So these, these are uh, Matthew 16, Luke 9. These are kind of hinge verses in the Gospels kind of where the story turns and everything becomes about him kind of fulfilling and moving towards his ultimate purpose of laying his life down, okay? So obviously Jesus understood that he had a very specific purpose for his life and a very specific path and way in which he would bring God glory. He knew he had to lay down his life and he was resolute in that endeavor and he embraced that purpose, that calling as hard as it was, and even though it was a hard calling, I would imagine there are some of us that um, are at least a little bit envious that at least he had a very clear um, path that he knew he was supposed to take, that, that God had kind of shown him, this is what you're going to need to do. Here's what's interesting, though. Immediately following this very clear proclamation of his purpose, he experiences some really frustrating events. On the one hand, here you have Peter who just said, hey, you're the son of God. And, and, and Jesus is like, well, yeah, you're right, I am. And because I am, it means that I have to go and die. Well, Peter wasn't cool with that. <laughs> he was fine with Jesus' identity, but that was not his plan for what he wanted Jesus' life to be about. And so he kind of speaks up and he's like, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> kind of like a not on my watch kind of a statement, right? I would never let you be killed like that. That's not going to happen. And so he speaks up and blurts these things out. And it's kind of like Jesus' best friend is throwing water on the fire, right? And then in Luke 9, as soon as Jesus starts heading towards Jerusalem, he, he goes through this area called Samaria, and he is just flatly rejected there. People don't really want to hear what he has to say. Nobody really receives his message. So let me frame it like this. It would be kind of like us, you know, at some point in our life, feeling like we had this very clear, finally, maybe for the first time, understanding of what our purpose was, right? And then going to our parents or our best friend or our spouse and like, hey, man, I really feel like I know what I'm supposed to do, right? And having all those people whose opinion that you really care about look at you and just be like, man, that's not, that's not going to happen. You're not going to do that. That's going to be way too hard. I'm not going to let you do that because it'll probably screw your whole life up, right? Or maybe 
You know, you're just so strong-willed that you hear that kind of negative feedback from people that you care about, and you're just like, you know what? I'm doing it anyways. Like, I'm so sure of what I'm supposed to do. I'm just going to go ahead. And then the first, you know, risk or step you take out in this new adventure just fails. I don't know about you, but it probably caused most of us to doubt a little bit (laughs) our plan, right? Everybody that we know is kind of saying we shouldn't do it, and then we try to start moving towards that goal, and things aren't going so hot, and... It'd be rough to stick with it. But Jesus, if you read in Luke 9, he just goes on to the next town. I mean, he's so sure of his calling, his purpose, that defeat and kind of some setbacks temporarily didn't bother him too much. And, you know, in the midst of living out our our life as followers of Christ, some of us have the privilege of having some clarity on some certain things. Most of us have some clarity on kind of some roles that we have in life. Right? We understand that we're supposed to be a good spouse or a good mom or dad or a good friend to others. Some of us might have clarity on our careers. But how do we handle setbacks or rejection or when our closest family members and friends kind of discourage us from our plans that, that God may have even kind of clearly laid out for us or roles that he's defined for us in Scripture? Jesus, it said, was resolute in accomplishing his purpose as our Savior. No amount of discouraging circumstances could deter him from that mission. When I was in um, seminary, I was reading about the life of Mother Teresa. And to be honest, I really didn't know a whole lot about her. Um, So it was interesting to kind of read her life story. And she was born in Europe and uh, ended up, you know, becoming a nun and moving to India at a pretty young age. But really, the first 20 years or so of her life there, she worked in a convent and actually was a principal of a school. Um, So, I'm not going to say cushy, but it was a pretty comfortable life. I mean, things were provided for her, you know, shelter, all that stuff, food, everything that she needed there. It was a very just great environment of learning. And then, about 1946, it says that she was uh, traveling, and she just very clearly heard God kind of call her to go to the poorest of the poor. And she kind of got a vision that it was supposed to be in Calcutta. And, you know, so she, in order to do that, though, to leave the position that she was in and start, she kind of wanted to start a new um, society of of, uh, nuns that were going to do this with her. She had to write the Pope and get his permission. Well, she wrote the Pope, and 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 she wrote the Pope. And she didn't hear much back from the Pope. And she had to wait four years before she finally got permission to do what she felt sure that God had said, I've called you to do this. And in the book, um, it described kind of like her life during those four years. And it wasn't real pretty. And you think about Mother Teresa as this really kind of holy woman she was. But man, she was struggling, doubting wondering why God was abandoning her. He'd spoken so clearly to her, and now she couldn't get the permission. She had this vision she wanted to go. And you know how it is kind of when you want to go, how hard it is to do the job that you're currently in, (laughs) that tension. And uh, it was just dark. And then even when she did get approval and she went to begin go living amongst the poor in Calcutta, she like put herself in there. So there were lots of days in those first year or two where she was begging for food, where she wasn't sure where she was going to sleep that night. And, And it was hard and she said the voice of, of Satan was calling her back to that, 
that school and that safe place where she was and she had to just be resolute and knowing that this is what God had called her to. And the writers of the New Testament made it very clear that if we lived our life for God's glory, there would be struggles. 1 John 3.13 says this, do not be surprised if the world hates you. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. To your right, kind of towards the end of the, of the Bible, page 852. 1 Peter 4, we're going to start in verse 12. It says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian... Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Well, it's one thing to to read those warnings in theory, right? In our heads and say, oh yeah, it looks like things could get rough. But to apply those and to live those out in the midst of the storm, that's a completely different thing to like hang on to those truths when life is rough and you're being persecuted and you're suffering, right? As I was researching this past week for this topic on um, purpose, I came across um, an article written by, um, actually it was written in a book, and then Relevant Magazine kind of took it and, and just had a short excerpt from the book uh, in there. If you don't follow Relevant on Twitter, you should. There's lots of really good articles in there every day. So anyways, shameless plug that I'm getting no money for. Um, but the article was entitled this, God has already revealed his plan for your life. So I thought, well, that's helpful. (laughs) Let's check it out. So here's how the author described her own personal journey. She said, I went through a, a season a few years ago when God was eerily quiet. When I prayed for direction or insight, there was nothing but silence. The conversations typically went like this. Maybe you can relate. Me, God, what do you think I should do? God, silence. Me, God, I really want to do your will. Your will. Can you tell me what that is? God, the sound of crickets. Me, God, will you give me clarity on what I should be doing? God, more silence. Me, God, are you even listening? I can't hear you. Will you answer me? Day after day, the conversations continued in the same fashion. I would ask God for an answer on a decision, and in return, I would hear nothing. I was at a crossroads and honestly didn't know what God wanted me to do. I prayed, I sought counsel, I prayed more, but God was incredibly silent. Then she said she had a breakthrough. One morning she was spending time in scripture in Philippians chapter 2, which we just looked at a moment ago, um, and God showed up and spoke to her that day. And just as a side note, I just want to say, man, Awesome job on her part of being faithful. Because so often in my life and in many of the people that I walk around, when you go through those stretches that are just kind of desert places in your walk with God where you're just not hearing his voice, it is so easy to just stop reading, stop praying, stop coming to church, 
Stop surrounding yourself with people that are going to challenge you and ask you tough questions and kind of hold you to the, the fire. But she was faithful, and she just kind of went back to God's word and went back to God's word. And, and it's only then that we can give him the opportunity to speak to us sometimes. You know, he's like, I got things to say to you, but you need to open up your Bible so I can say them, right? So she's in Philippians 2, and, and God breaks through. And this is what she said she heard God say. She said, God said this, you want to know what I want you to do? Start by being obedient to what I've already commanded you. I've given you a lot to do. I want you to have my attitude and my mindset. I want your life to look like mine. And she said in in chapter 2, we didn't get this far, but verse 14 really stuck out to her. It says this, do everything without complaining or arguing. And she realized that in just that one little command in this whole book of the Bible that she had a lot of work to do. And so as she went on from there, she said she continued to read, and it's like the Bible just became alive to her. And she began to take a journal and write down all the commands that she read that she knew she really wasn't living. And she said, I stopped at 74. (laughs) Here's a few that, that she wrote down that she shared in her journal. Imitate him. Think about what is pure, holy, and right. Be joyful. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Let the word of Christ dwell in me. Be kind to the poor. Focus my heart on heavenly things. Be kind and compassionate. Be devoted in prayer. Live above reproach. Make the most of every opportunity. And on and on and on she wrote. It's an interesting exercise. Well, one thing that I've learned following Christ now 30-something years is that living a way of purpose is less about what you actually do, and it's more about who you are, who you're becoming, your character. Because I believe that really only a very small few in this world are going to get a really specific God-ordained purpose for your life in terms of a job, a career, a task that he's called you to. And usually those people who do suffer a lot. (laughs) Read some of their stories. You can look at the Bible and you can see specific examples of God where he spoke a specific purpose into their life. I mean, obviously Jesus knew that he was supposed to go and die for us, right? Noah, God said, Noah, I want you to build a big boat and save humanity because it's going to rain a lot, right? He said to Moses, Moses, you're going to go to Egypt, and I want you to set my people free. You can look at some examples of people in history, whether it's Mother Teresa, William Wilberforce, right, who God gave a pretty clear plan that you're going to be a huge part of the abolition of slavery in in the United Kingdom. You can look at Martin Luther King Jr. and say, yeah, man, God gave him a pretty specific purpose to be the leader of the civil rights movement in America. Exactly. But for most of us, God simply says, whatever you do, whatever you do, just do it for my glory. I'm going to let you choose. So if you choose to be a teacher or a mailman or a mechanic or a missionary, whatever it is, do it in such a way that when people watch your work, they praise me, for you, for the way in which you love and serve and humbly go about 
the purposes that God has put before you. We were created to give God, God glory. Focus on your character. Maybe instead of always looking for what's next, we would be wise to follow the example of that relevant magazine writer. <laughs> and, and even Paul, when he wrote this in Philippians 3.16, he said, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. In other words, we don't need a new word from God. We just need to do the things that he's already commanded us to do, that we've read before, that we know we should be doing. And find purpose in that journey of remembering. Be resolute in having the same attitude and same mindset as Jesus. And that will be plenty of purpose for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you created us in your image.